This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. A lot of developments on the vaccine and COVID-19 front today. J&J's experimental one-shot COVID-19 vaccine generating a long-lasting immune response in an early safety study. So we've got that. Right now, we've got 92.5 million cases, deaths surpassing 1.98 million. And as for the vaccine rollout, more than 32.4 million shots have been given uh, worldwide. Let's bring in our guest, Gigi Granval. She is at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Her background is amazing. She's an associate professor, senior scholar in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering, and she's an immunologist by training. Among things she has authored, one is uh, Preparing for Bioterrorism, uh, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Leadership in Biosecurity. She's on the phone in Baltimore, so let's get to it. Gigi, um, the one thing Tim and I really want to ask you about is a story we just talked about, about a New York congressman who got uh, the vaccine, two shots, and still diagnosed with COVID-19. How do we need to kind of understand how that can happen? Yes. So vaccines are not, um, they're not a, uh, like a Kevlar vest for, for viruses. Um, they, they are a training program for your immune system. And, and we look at um, how effective they might be. Um, so some of the vaccines are like 95% uh, effective. That means that if you and I were both exposed and you were vaccinated and I was not, your risk of coming down with COVID is 95% reduced. So it's not zero. And, um, and we don't know. There are lots of variables involved. Um, you know, how long was it after the second shot before he came down with COVID, whether or not there was some failure along the way. Um, so all these things could, uh, could interact with his, you know, his protection. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's not, uh, it's, nothing is 100% uh, in this world, but, um, but definitely the vaccine has been shown to be protective for most people. Do you get concerned when you see stories like this, news stories like this, because it could give people the wrong impression about the efficacy of a vaccine or about the need to get vaccinated? Sure, um, because you know we humans we love stories, right? And um, sometimes the stories don't tell the um, what what it was actually true for most people statistically. We don't think in terms of population, so that's true, especially when it comes to any sort of adverse event from the um, from a vaccine. Um, you know, we always worry about that because uh, bad things happen to people all the time, and if it's connected to a vaccine and a story. Um, the two things might ha- not have anything to do with each other, but um, but it could be you know linger in somebody's mind and and affect how they think of the vaccine. Does the variants that are coming out in terms of COVID impact? You know, even if you've got a vaccine, could you get the virus? Get get? Are you more? Could you? Are you more likely to get the variant versus the original COVID nineteen? I guess is what I'm asking. Sure. So right now, um, we think that the, the vaccines are protective against these new variants that we've um, been discovered. But okay. um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm worried because, um, you know, all, viruses mutate all the time. 
all the time. And so one of the things that we need to do is to limit their opportunities to mutate. And um, and that means driving down spread. That's through vaccination, through masks and everything else. But um, we, when we have these variants, um, it looks like the vaccine will protect. But I just worry about, you know, the next ones that we discover. Well, go go with us i think about all of those movies that are made about you know the virus the things that mutate and how they become you know <laughs> in a fictional world um just difficult to kind of overcome what's the worst case scenario of um mutation in this virus the worst case scenario for this uh for this virus well um there, there are lots of different things that the virus doesn't do now that, um, that it could do. And so we want to make sure it doesn't become more severe, uh, more severe disease, um, have an expanded population that it causes more severe disease in. Um, but what I think is uh, the most serious concern right now is just making sure that it doesn't um, uh, evolve away from the vaccine. So we don't want it to okay. escape from the vaccine. And and the quicker we can get this under control, the, the more uh, likely we won't have to worry as much about that. It might be in the future that we need to update the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'll be uh, a longer time in the future than, you know, than these variants might suggest. Well, thanks to our producers. I know that one thing that you have looked closely at is the politicization, not just of the entire pandemic, but of the vaccine and the administration of the vaccine. What do lawmakers need to do in order to make it less politicized so we can truly round the corner here? And we only have about 40 seconds. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you just really need to to put um, everything on the science and make decisions based on the science and admit that, you know, science changes. And so then that what you know about the disease and what you can, your plans, that will change as well. But um, if you always stick to what you know, then you don't have to worry about um, about being wrong Um, and just acknowledge that, you know, things change, but we're doing the best we can with the knowledge and science that we have available. I wanted to go to what Charlie was talking about with Johnson & Johnson's one-shot vaccine. It's, it has not been approved for emergency use authorization. We are still awaiting further information and data from a clinical trial. But I'm wondering just about the, the one-shot element here. How, how big of a deal is it that this could there could be a one-shot vaccine coming out? Oh, it's such a big deal. So we only have gotten the phase um, one and two data for Johnson and Johnson, so we are still waiting to hear about the efficacy, which will come in in the phase three data. So we, that's we're still waiting for the data. So don't want to get too excited, but um, it's a one-shot vaccine, and it requires regular refrigeration. It's not one of these, you know, needing to have an exotic minus 80 degrees refrigerator, which is what you need for the Pfizer, and then to a lesser degree the Moderna vaccine. So um, it's it's very exciting from a logistics point of view because um, this is a hard enough task as it without having to add these additional logistical burdens. It's like, it sounds to me like, you know, this is pretty impressive, right? Yeah, I mean, and as you said, it's early going. When do we expect to get that later uh, and key um, stage study? I've heard that we should expect it in uh, the in the next couple of weeks, next two or three weeks, Soon. and um, that plans are to have late February, early March, at least the last I've 
I've heard um, to have them uh, submit the data for um, the process to hopefully get emergency use authorization. So it's, it's some weeks away. There are some concerns I read about how um, manufacturing is not hmm. quite up to the level that they, they want. Um, hopefully they can correct whatever issues they are having. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's in, hopefully in the next couple of months we will have another vaccine online. The vaccines that have been approved for emergency use authorization here in the U.S. Uh, from Moderna and from, from Pfizer-BioNTech, they use messenger RNA technology. How is the technology or, or the, the way the vaccine is, is manufactured, how is that different in the Johnson & Johnson one? Yeah, so that is using an adenovirus vector, which can't, um, as in the previous segment um, heard, it can't replicate in humans. So it's not, um, you don't have to worry, you cannot get um, COVID from this vaccine. Um, but it is a different vector. It's a little more tra- traditional um, vector to use for for, uh, for, va- for um, different types of vaccines. So um, it's it's just another product like the others. Um, it's uh, it will have a few side effects. So um, people just need to be aware that they might have a headache, they might um, have a sore arm, things like that. Um, but that you know they can just be more forearmed, you know, so right. that they. Uh, that they can um, be prepared for that. My understanding it was also the same um, science that was used in J&J's Ebola vaccine, Zika, and a few other things. Hey, I got to ask you, Gigi, this is something that I don't quite understand. You know, the kind of problems we've had with the vaccine rollout. What happened? What? Where was the breakdown? Because I feel like we had a ton of conversations over the summer that we knew it was coming. We knew the vaccine several. We talked about distribution, logistics. What happened, do you think, in terms of getting it out to people? I think we'll, we'll learn more as the weeks go on what happened there, because I think there were always going to be some hiccups. But one thing is for sure, the uh, stimulus bill um, included money for distribution, and that was not present before. So... The other problem is that um, that states are doing a lot more than um, than probably they they should be doing. There is uh, just been the case for all aspects of um, the COVID response, where um, every state is uh, doing their own plan instead of having um, much more aggressive federal um, you know, leadership. And so I think uh, that that situation will change in the in the coming weeks, and um, and so hopefully people will get used to the logistics involved. Really quickly, if you can, in 15 seconds, do you anticipate by summer we'll have the majority of our population vaccinated, or maybe even sooner? I hope so, and that should be our goal because um, we need to get uh, to prepare for these variants and this and vaccination is a huge way to get everybody going and the economy going again. Great stuff. Listen, thank you so much. Really appreciate your expertise. Gigi Gronval, Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and Associate Professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. So big business, uh, Tim. Yeah, we've been seeing it backing away from President Trump after the Capitol Hill riot. And while that could be 
an opportunity for Democrats, it's likely not to play out that way. So reporting for Bloomberg Business Week, Business Week editor Peter Coy on the phone in New Jersey, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Uh, he's on the Access line in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, it has been interesting to see big business, you know, in terms of how quickly and probably understandably, Joel, that they've been backing away from this president. Do we have Joel? I think we're having a little trouble okay. getting Joel. Peter? Uh, Peter, I want to. Peter, do we have I, you? Yeah, I can answer that question. So please, yeah, come on in. They they have definitely backed away. I mean, what I said in my article is that the bridge between Trump and the big business was never as solid as it might have appeared, but now it's in flaming ruins. It's just completely destroyed, probably uh, irreparable. Of course, that's with Trump. That doesn't necessarily mean the bridge between the big business and the Republican Party is irreparable. I think that is repairable. That's what we're going to be watching for the next few years. So the big question, though, Peter, is what the Republican Party looks like over the next few years, because there are segments of the Republican Party right now that aren't the traditional pro-business, no low regulation and uh, free market, right? Correct. 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 That's all right. The the issue is now that a big Trump has put an imprint on the Republican Party. He's pulled in new sets of voters and who are more populist and are suspicious of big business, the elites of big business, the CEOs, just as much as they're suspicious of academic and government and media elites. They don't give big business a pass. And so uh, that makes it tough for organizations like the Business Roundtable the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers. Joel Weber, I think we've got you now. Come on in on the conversation. Yeah, you don't need me, though. You can just yeah. stick with Peter. Um, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the, you know, Peter, the, there is this opportunity here um, for Democrats. And we think about big business, and it's largely historically been um, been something that feels like it's drifted more towards GOP than, than Democrats. And yet there's this kind of a jump ball moment. And, and yeah. what is the opportunity really for, for Democrats here to, to take um, uh, advantage of, of this moment? You know, there have always been segments of the business community that were more favorable towards the Democrats. Tech uh, was till fairly recently and now, but th- that sort of marriage is uh, on the rocks a little bit. Um, but the, the opportunity, the jump ball, as you call it, okay, look. Already we've seen that the stock market has responded pretty well to the, the prospects of a Biden victory. And when uh, the two Democrats won in the open seats in Georgia, which gave the Democrats the Senate control, stock market went up on that news. So people are expecting uh, two things from Biden that are favorable for big business. One is that he'll probably bring on more stimulus, COVID relief, bigger dollars, and two, that he might be more effective than Trump has been at arresting the coronavirus epidemic. If, if he succeeds in both of those, that'd be great for corporate profits and therefore for stock prices. Right. So what about um, how much of this is just uh, uh, big businesses backing away from Trump because of of last week and, and a longing for a GOP that it looks a lot more like it did pre-Trump. That's I think that's most of it. It's it's not so much that they're in love with Biden. Uh, there's still a lot of suspicion of Biden. 
especially because the Democratic Party platform is quite liberal, maybe the most liberal it's been in decades. Um, they, they look at a lot of things that Biden wants to do and say, no, we don't want to go there. But Trump is, you know, the, the, obviously the breaking point was the invasion of the Capitol, which he seemed to incite, um, just shocked people. Organizations, the National Association of Manufacturers are conventionally fairly true, true uh, red Republican group, uh, almost right wing in, in, the, in the past. And yet they were the first ones out with a statement calling this sedition and, and asking Biden, uh, asking, I'm sorry, uh, Pence to uh, try to get the cabinet to invoke the 25th Amendment to have Trump removed from office. You know, what's interesting, though, I think for so long and, and but a while ago, Peter, that we thought, you know, business was beholden only to Republicans. But if you look at donations and you put it out in your story that especially when Democrats call control Congress, you find groups like PE, oil and gas, real estate companies tend to give a lot to the Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, very much opportunistic giving by these uh, organizations. They they want to give to people who I think they can help them with their agenda. Democrats rise up and gain a majority, then suddenly they want to curry favor with them. So it's very clear from the chart that appears with the story. And so with the Democrats controlling the White House and both houses of Congress this time, I think there could be um, strong giving to Democrats for at least the next two years. Peter, what about um, uh, this idea of, of, you know, we're in this moment that obviously has been inflamed. We're going to see what inspires over the next week. And I'm curious, like, you know, from, from your reporting, does it suggest that business will just stay on the sidelines for a while? Or will someone get back in and sort of like start to, to angle sooner than that? You know, they have they operate on multiple levels and the public you don't hear a lot from them. Like, they don't really enjoy talking to people like me because, you know, ask uncomfortable questions. But that doesn't mean they're not operating. They're very much in their lobbying day to day. Uh, so they're not on the sidelines at all. Uh, they're pushing their agenda. And that will continue. Um, if anything, it'll be stepped up now that we have a new uh, Congress and a, and a new uh, president. Well, and I do wonder, Peter, does business help kind of, you know, help with the reboot of the Republican Party and help in the maybe perhaps redefinition, redefinition yeah. of them? Like, how do you see it? Um, yeah. Okay. They, it's not so much that they want to go in a new direction. They kind of want to go back to the yeah, old direction. True. They kind of like that. <laughs> uh, deregulation, uh, low taxes. Uh, but but it's that's the caricature that the big business is not. Um, entirely against all kinds of regulation. And my article details several areas in which the uh, re- big business, if anything, re- rebelled against some of the deregulatory measures of the Trump administration. Well, definitely something to think about with everything else that's going on and yeah. kind of how we, we get our way back. Peter, um, always great. Peter Coy, he is Bloomberg Business Week uh, economics editor on the phone in New Jersey. Check out his story in the magazine. Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber uh, joining us on the Access Line in Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic.
from Bloomberg Radio. So all this week, politics and the happenings in and around the nation's capital, no doubt about it, it has been our top story, topped off with the second impeachment of President Trump. Writing about it, and the one high-ranking House Republican who has stuck her neck out when it comes to this, Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming. You caught up with him earlier today on Quick Take, and we're I, talking about Josh Green. I did, yeah. Josh Green, he's national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week, and he joins us now on the phone from Washington, D.C., uh, Josh, I cannot get enough of this column that you wrote last night uh, about Liz Cheney's bold bet on impeachment. Uh, did it backfire? Well, I don't think we're going to know for a little while, but but certainly her going out and making this searing statement against Trump, saying there's you know he's betrayed the United States, he violated his oath to office and his oath to the Constitution. Um, I, I think she probably expected or hoped for a bigger following among Republicans. In the end, only nine other Republicans voted for her or to support Trump's impeachment. Uh, but I think the real acid test is going to come in the months and years ahead as you know Trump fades from the scene a bit. Part of the bet she was making is the future of the GOP is going to be something more along the lines of what it used to be. I mean, Cheney, before she came to Congress, um, was a very well-known uh, neocon who had uh, serious conservative views like her father, former Vice President Dick Cheney. I think part of the bet here is that she can steer the party back in that direction. But having said that, uh, you know, just, just in the day or so since the vote and in the week or so since the riots, it's pretty clear from, from uh, polls that the majority of Republican voters are sticking with Trump. So something is going to have to change in order for her bet to, to be proved to be the right one. Uh, politically, but I but I do think it's probably too soon to make that judgment. So does she accurately represent the people of Wyoming and the people who put her in office? Well, she certainly does not in terms of the vote she took to impeach Trump. Trump won Wyoming last November. I think it was 70 to 26 percent. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's one of the reddest states in the country. So, so certainly a lot of support for Trump there. Uh, and in speaking to uh, people in and around Wyoming politics for this column, they'd said, look, there's going to be unhappiness. It's going to ruffle a lot of feathers. Uh, but that being said, uh, Cheney, you know, the, the Cheney name has a long and storied history in Wyoming politics. Um, you know, she isn't she isn't uh, you know, new. She has a serious base of support. I think there's a lot of goodwill toward her in Wyoming just generally leaving aside the issue of Trump and his impeachment. So most people I talked to thought she would have no real problem surviving. And timing-wise, this is probably good for her, just in the sense that she was just reelected to another two-year House term in November. So it's going to be quite a while before she has to face voters again. What's the potential upside of this, becoming a leader within the party? I mean, if she does successfully sort of forge her own path away from President Trump with a handful of other Republicans, what's the potential upside she faces? Well, you know, I think in, in the best possible world, you know, the upside she'd have is that, you know, the party is going to face a reckoning after Trump. And that maybe when he's no longer in the Oval Office and not splashed on Fox News all the time, assuming the social media platforms keep him curbed, that his influence on Republican politics will wane um, in much the same way Sarah Palin did 10 years ago. You know, for a while there, she was the hottest thing in Republican politics. Everyone covered her endorsement and was afraid of her criticism. You know, but eventually she kind of blew away and, and, and didn't exert any real lasting influence personally. I think Cheney's best case uh, hope would be that something like that would happen with Trump. That two years from now, the world will have long moved on. Biden and the Democrats will be in charge. The unifying thing among Republicans will be opposing Biden. 
and that Cheney will be seen as someone who, you know, bravely ventured out and broke with the Trumpists at a time when that was a dangerous thing to do. And one thing that both her supporters and critics I talked to said was that uh, this move was absolutely a bold one and a risky one. It wasn't an easy political thing to do. I think a lot of people give her credit for taking that step. Well, I kind of know the answer to this question because I've read your story. But, you know, what emboldened her to do it? Was this just a politician saying, you know, what's right, what's wrong, basically? You know, I, I got a lot of debate while reporting about this. I mean, on, yeah, on one yeah. hand, clearly this is a principled stand that she has no love for Donald Trump and has been unhappy with him and has said so publicly all along, although not to the degree that we saw with her impeachment statement. Um, that being said, she is a professional politician from a family of politicians, and everything they do is to some extent a political bet. I think the bet here is that long term, this is going to be seen in hindsight to be the right move the same way that a lot of people who voted, a lot of Republicans who voted to impeach Richard Nixon, you know, that's now the first line in their uh, obituaries. You know, something that will, in hindsight, come to be seen as brave and principled and will pay political benefits for the few Republicans willing to do this at the time. Yeah, I just wonder how long it will take for for that hindsight to become clear. Is it, you know, two years when she faces reelection or is it, you know, 10 years from now or or even, you know, Go ahead. It's, it's an interesting story because I think what's likelier to happen in the short time, there are already petitions going around among House Republicans to oust her from her leadership position in the House. So she may well face a steep short-term penalty, not in terms of losing her seat in Wyoming, but in losing, losing her leadership spot in the Republican House leadership. So she could actually pay a steep price before she realizes any political gain. I think that would come later on in the future. But all of this, I think, uh, certainly her fate in the House it's probably going to be decided in the next 60 days or so. I think we'll have a sense that this is survivable. Or not. not quite cancel culture, but I just think about this whole idea that you're, same thing, right? you're allowed to have different perspectives. You know, Josh, you've been following politics. Like, this is something we've got to figure out. That's the whole crux of what makes, I think, good politics is when you have different points of view and people can discuss it and figure out what's a smart way forward for both. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, you know, in, in fairness to those Republicans who want to cancel Liz Cheney, uh, you know, she, she's the number three ranking House Republican. Mm-hmm. Her vote was clearly out of step with the majority of her caucus. And if they decide to pass a, loosen, uh, a resolution to revoke it, you know, they're well within their rights to do that. And she was well aware of that going into it. I, I think for her that it's a combination of, of, of principle, like I said, and also a belief that longer term, her brand of politics uh, is, is still one that, that, that she and other Republicans can be bullish on and that there will come a day, even though it's hard to envision now, right. when Trump won't have this iron grip on the Republican Party. Just going to say, too, Dick Cheney wears a mask and that picture is in Josh's story. Josh Green, and I want to say thanks, Josh, because we're going to talk with Adam Gentleson a little bit later on, who's got a book out called Kill, Kill Switch, all about the Senate uh, and the crippling of American democracy. So, Josh, thank you because you brought that to us. Josh actually has a story about that book. It's on the Bloomberg Terminal as well. Josh Green, national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This 
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, it's time for the drive to the close. And today we're hearing from Wall Street visionaries, three executives who spent their careers on the cutting edge of the financial industry, who shared their views on what's to come in the next five to 10 years. This is so important for investors. And they shared it all with Bloomberg News' Shanali Basak. She is Wall Street reporter. She's on the phone. She's in our New York City bureau, but we believe in social distancing. So she's down in our studio. Shanali, this is a killer story. It is among the most read. It will be among the most read for the week overall. So tell us, first of all, what you set out to do and who you talked to. Thanks, Carol. This is something that um, I had been working on for a while. It's something I ask all industry executives, actually. It's what do they think the next big worry is for them over the next five to 10 years? And finally, we got it all down on paper. This time around, in the middle of a global pandemic, the biggest surprise is that from three financial visionaries in the middle of a global pandemic, they're most concerned about the impacts on technology, on society. Technology and society. Um, Chanali, we've been lucky to have you uh, throughout the week join us on, on Quick Take to talk about some of these interviews you did. One thing that I'm curious about is th- this thread that runs through them. What did these responses have in common? What did these interviews have in common in terms of their concern about next big risk? Well, there were a couple things, Tim. One of them was that a lot of our guests believe that there should be a much bigger role that the government plays in terms of reining in some of these technology companies. Marty Chavez, who was really an architect of the technology businesses within Goldman Sachs, had said the big tech giants should be stress tested, similar to how the big U.S. banks were stress tested after the 2008 financial crisis. Because just like any other business that has gotten very big over time, um, you know, there's really externalities that can come from unrestrained grabs for profit. I think that is such a key thing, considering that massive hack, and it's really been overshadowed, uh, understandably so, by all the political news that we've had here in the United States. But, you know, when I have side conversations, Shanali, with individuals, they're like, you know, we got to keep on this story. We got to figure out what happened, that massive hack into US, into the U.S. government, into various institutions and organizations. We kind of, that was a really big warning sign. It, it certainly is. And, and, you know, the thing about it is, there's so much else going on in the world yeah. right now. I think that's what makes it important that you have all of these executives who are not only looking at this as a long-term prod- problem, but also um, trying to call on leaders to do something about this anyways, as uh, tired and exhausted and tied up as they are with all the other issues that are going on in society. So there's another individual that you spoke to, Eileen Murray. She's former co-CEO at Bridgewater Associates. And we do want to share, first of all, with our audience, a little snippet of the conversation where in this in the little clip, you, she talks about the need for businesses and the Biden administration to come together on job training and education. Check it out, everyone. It's like the current pandemic, uh, you know, just as all of the um, uh, companies that were producing a vaccine had to work closely hand in glove with the government, businesses need to work closely hand in glove with the Biden administration to deal with people that need to be retrained. And then I think let's, let's step back to lower income people. I mean, in this COVID situation, there are children that, that their parents can't afford a computer for them to be educated online. And a lot of, a lot of education's gone online. It breaks my heart. Uh, you know, so how do we incent people to donate computers, to, 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 to donate money to helping those people get educated? Give them a tax break. I, I, you know, I don't know if that's the full solution, but the problem's getting bigger. Yeah, there you have it. That's Eileen Murray. She's former co-CEO of Bridgewater Associates speaking with Shanali Basik. Um, Shanali, 
the idea of permanent unemployment, the idea of, of the, not just the pandemic, but, but people who cannot get jobs again, what is the solution to that, according to the people you spoke with? Yeah, and, and remember, Kim, one thing that's terrifying about this is she is speaking about this issue irregardless of a global pandemic. And because of this COVID-19 crisis and economic crisis, we have 18 million people who have, compl- who have claimed unemployment across regular and emergency programs. So we already have a lot of joblessness. Uh, one of the things she offers is the idea of a tax break to companies that are re- willing to retrain workers and uh, help really kickstart employment in this new economy because it does look different with, uh, with technology than it did in the past. So instead of laying people off and letting automation take over, why not create jobs? Kind of like the Henry Ford model with, um, you know, with cars. Build technology and build processes that make the economy more productive, but also do it in a way that allows the people to afford the goods that they are making. That's what David Siegel, who is the co-founder of, of quantitative finance giant Two Sigma had promote, proposed. Well, that's what's interesting, too, is that, listen, you know, we constantly are talking about this time of crisis and strain and stress, you know, leads to innovation. That's the good sign. But you do wonder what it means for there's so many jobs that are constantly being automated at this point. I mean, listen, we've kidded around here how now even stories are being written, you know, by robots and automated systems. And it's not Um, a joke, though. It's not a joke. It's real. It's a thing. And it's so it's it's areas, Shanali, that we never thought would be automated, yet it's possible. It's absolutely possible. And, you know, another thing that that the Two Sigma founder had said was, what does that mean for our role as investors, is what he said. He said that for him, it meant investing in places like education and healthcare and places where, you know, you could actually earn a great return on top of also creating technology that could help people at the end of the day. There's a novel thing, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, he said we're really at risk here of just focusing on GDP for Mm -hmm. GDP's sake and not focusing on the things that are harder to measure, like happiness. Um, How does one, from a government to an investor, how do you measure happiness? Shanali, I just want to end with with how this came together. What was the idea, the genesis for this, and, and, and why this question? Well, for one thing, from the investor perspective, these people are paid to think about risk. They sit there and they do it all day long. So um, from that perspective, you know, it's something that's already on their minds. But what did uh, surprise me at the end of this project was how much they were worried about the broader society and their role in it. Because guess what, Tim? At the end of the day, if people don't sort this thing these things out, it will become a problem for companies and executives uh, in terms of how much they're paying in taxes or how much they're having to give back to society right. um, at the end of the day if they don't take care of it. I love that the line in your story about David Siegel saying, I don't think people are reflecting enough. And he talks about in Japan how they think about you know the experience a lot. We say that. We say that a lot, but I don't know that we're thinking about it and putting it into action. Shanali, uh, you are amazing. Shanali Basik, Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg News, uh, joining us uh, here at our New York uh, studios and headquarters. Check out our story. It's on the Bloomberg. I'll put it out on Twitter again. It is among the most read on the Bloomberg, and it will be for the week overall easily. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.